sabrosura pa ti que Hello everyone, this is Pam de Café con Pam, the bilingual podcast that features Latinx and people of color that fear less, break barriers, change lives, and make this world a better place. Welcome to episode 167 of Café con Pam. Today, we have a conversation with Paola Mendoza. Paola is a film director, activist, author, and artist working at the leading edge of human rights. A co-founder of the Women's March, she served as the artistic director and co-authored the New York Times bestseller Together We Rise, behind the scenes at the protests heard around the world. Paola's most recent book, Sanctuary, will be released by Penguin in 2020. Ms. Mendoza is also a critically acclaimed film director whose films have premiered at the most prestigious film festivals around the world. Her films have thoughtfully tackled the complex issues of poverty and emigration on women and children in the United States. She was named Glamour's Woman of the Year in 2017 and one of Filmmakers Magazine's 25 New Faces of Independent Film. She is a co-founder of the SOS Agency and a co-founder of the Resistance Revival Chorus, the critically acclaimed women's chorus that believes joy is an act of resistance. Listeners, this interview was awesome. And something I found pretty cool is how Paola's experience is similar to mine and the fact that she lived in Colombia and then came back to the U.S. to go to school. So you'll hear that interview in the interview, but I thought that was pretty cool. On my end, I have been catching up with work and self-care. Now that my niece and nephew are gone, transitioning to a new lifestyle is important. And I need to constantly remind myself that I this process, I need to take it with grace and ease because we are still existing in a world in the middle of a pandemic. And every day there are new changes. There are things happening every day without warning. So I'm reminding myself every day that Something I can control is what's happening internally in my world. And I need to make sure that my transition is smooth. So that's my update. <laughs> Self-care and mental health are important monies. Let's not forget that. Monies, the old way of doing business isn't working anymore. We're in the middle of a pandemic, a civil rights movement, and we're approaching election. Things are very different. For me, I am much more ignited and fired up to help small businesses succeed and achieve their goals. This is why I reached out to my friend Taylor Tiemann, aka Legal Miga, to come together and talk about all the things we always get asked, all in one sitting. I will give you the steps to conduct your own brand audit and Taylor will answer all your legal questions. We are here to help you get there despite the changes and the shifts. We believe you're worthy of achieving your dreams with support. Join us at spreadideasmovepeople.com forward slash clarify. Paola and I talked about a lot of things, including her upcoming book, Sanctuary. Something important to note here is that this book comes out September 1st, 2020. And if you are listening to this episode before this date, I want to invite you to pre-order the book. Why? Because the pre-sale number is a good indicator of a book success, which means that if we support Paola's book, then people will begin to pay attention, not only to buy the book, but also to authors of color. So if you are in a position to pre-order, please do so and support Paola and Abby, who co-wrote this book. Bueno, ahora sí, let's dive into Paola's story. During our conversation, Paola shared her experience of living in LA, education, making the decision to study theater, becoming an artist. We talked about the Women's March, self-doubt, and so many other things. 
I hope you enjoy my conversation with Paola Mendoza. Paola Mendoza, welcome to Café con Pam. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Likewise, thank you for being here. So, in good Café con Pam fashion, tell me what's your heritage. I was born in Colombia, in Bogota. My family is from Cali and Buga, and my mother, myself, and my brother were the first of our families to immigrate to the United States. So I came to the States when I was three years old. I grew up in California, in LA, and then I went back to Bogota when I was 14 and did high school out there and then came back to LA and moved to New York for grad school. I love it. And you and I have a similar story because your mom sent you to Colombia because you were hanging out with like not the best friends. <laughs> and my mom sent me to Mexico because my best friend got pregnant. Oh, <laughs> so just by association, you got back to Mexico. Basically. Where in Mexico did you go? I grew up in Mexico City. And for how long were you there? My story is really interesting because I was born in the US and I grew up in Mexico City my whole life. And so I came for high school. My best friend gets pregnant and my mom's like, nope. Going back, and I don't know. I, I'll ask about your story, but for me, she I went to visit my dad for the summer, and then once the summer was over, it was like, No, you're staying, just kidding, you're not coming back. <laughs> so it wasn't a planned, you know, departure. Yeah. How was it for you? So, as you inferred, I was, you know, I was 14 and I started gangbanging when I was around 12, and my mom was an immigrant and she didn't know what that was. She had no idea what gangs were, really. It took her a couple of years to figure it out. And at the age of 14, when she figured it out, what was going on, that she saw very clearly I was either going to end up in jail, dead, or on drugs. She was like, oh, no, 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 no. De vas. So she told me on a Friday that I was leaving to Colombia to live. She didn't say for how long, but she was definitely like a year. So she told me on Friday that I was leaving to Colombia on Monday. And then she took all of my shoes because I was running away a lot. So she took all of my shoes. So I couldn't literally, I couldn't run away. And so I had no shoes and she posted up in my bedroom. She locked me in the bedroom and she posted up in my bedroom with me from Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And then on Monday, drove me to the airport, put me on the plane and I was gone. And I went to go move in with an aunt of mine and my cousin who was my same age. And I had been going back to Colombia pretty much almost every summer. So it wasn't like I didn't know what I was going into, but it was definitely a shock. And it happened like at the end of the summer. So I started school on time with everybody else there. And I lived there for two and a half years. But when I came back, so I was coming back to the States to visit my mother for summer. That summer, it was like I was entering my senior year in Colombia. And that summer, everybody was like, no, you can't come back. You got to stay in the States. So they did the same thing to me, but like the opposite. So I was just supposed the to opposite. be. Yeah. And I was so upset and so hurt because I just wanted to go back to Colombia. Let's unpack that because you're very public. So I know a lot about you. One of the things that I know is that you were a straight A student, right? So how does a straight A student or someone who likes school on paper, I don't know if you did, how does Paola get into, into this gang life? Well, you know, I think very often we equate, quote unquote, getting into trouble with not being intelligent, right? Or, or not being interested in education or not being interested in mental stimulation. But I think it's actually quite the opposite. You know, I am not comparing myself to Malcolm X. But if you look at Malcolm X's story, he himself, right, he was in jail, also a petty thief. And it was the surroundings around where he was living and also what society expected of him to be 
that really, um, I would imagine, pushed him into a lifestyle of quote-unquote crime. And yet, when he was given another opportunity, when a community around him, which ultimately became his society, believed that he could be better, he also fulfilled those expectations and became an incredible leader, changed the, the course of history in the United States, right? So I think in similar ways, with regards to me, like I was in a community that because of my name, because I was an immigrant, because I spoke in Spanish, they expected this girl at a very young age, at the age of 11, 12, to go down this road. Um, and they pushed me into a school to prison pipeline at the age of 11, 12. And when I say they, I mean the community, I mean the, the school system, I mean the teachers, I mean the principals. And my mom was so focused on trying to put food on the table um, that she didn't really realize what was happening. And we came from, we lived in a working class neighborhood, so there wasn't a lot of extracurricular resources for, for children to be stimulated by, to have community. And, you know, I went to school, came home, my mom was working. I stayed home from... Mm-hmm. Three o'clock to whenever my mom got home, eight, nine o'clock at night. Um, and that was every day and a lot of the times on the weekends. So I fulfilled society's expectations of what they thought a brown immigrant girl could be. Now, the one thing that kind of fucked with their formula was that I did do well in school. Because to be quite frank, school was very easy. And it was also very easy because I was in really bad schools. So it's not that I was a genius. I was just a smart girl that was like in shitty schools. And so I didn't have to exert myself very much to do well in school. When I went to Columbia, the expectations for me in Columbia were that I be excellent, were that I be smart, were that I had to be responsible, were all of these things that I fulfilled as well. Because I was also challenged emotionally and mentally. Um, it was a new world. I was seeing something outside of my neighborhood. And I had the, the expectations on my side in Colombia versus I feel like the expectations for me in this country were definitely not on my side. Totally. Thank you for mentioning that. And I agree 100% because I, I also lived that experience of going back and forth and then living those two worlds. And you're like, wait. On one end, and I don't know if it's the same in Colombia, but in Mexico, they laughed at my transcript. Not laughed, but they were like, this is what you study in high school? (laughs) They actually pushed me back a year because it's just very completely different. And I agree 100%. And and with your story, how many times is that repeated Mm. because of redlining, because of, you know, the community and the school system, white supremacy, all the things have pushed brown and black communities to go into this life so many times. You had the opportunity to go into another country and experience this other life that then when you came back, you were like, whoa. Let's talk about that shift. Yeah. So, you know, and I think I have to be very clear too, when I went back to Colombia, Colombia, I love and adore, but also has tremendous systematic racism as well, um, both against the indigenous community Mm -hmm. and against the black community in Colombia. And a form of classism that exists in Latin America that the United States just doesn't comprehend, right? And so Colombia is not a perfect place. And I went to Colombia to a very privileged background to my aunt's house, which was very privileged, right? So the expectations of me in that society were very high, mainly because of the class structure that I moved into. And here in the United States, we were not from a high class, right? We were working class, many times poor class, poor working class. So to be able to shift between those two worlds is a unique experience. And really, it's something that 
I cherish because I know that I can walk into any room and feel comfortable in any circumstance, in any situation, because I've belonged in in the two extremes, right? Mm -hmm. So everything in between is manageable and welcoming as well. My shift back to the United States, again, because it was like shocking. I wasn't expecting it. I was just kind of pushed into my senior year of high school in the United States. I had left all of my friends in middle school, um, and I was going back to a place where I knew people but I had just disappeared off the face of the earth. And this was, there was no internet then. Calling Columbia was right. very expensive. Calling the United States was just untenable. So I didn't, hadn't spoken to anyone really for years, except for a couple of people that I would speak to when I would go back and visit my mom in the summer. So I remember going back and like seeing my old crew, seeing everybody who I used to kick it with. And like, there was a moment of what you're going to do. You're going to come back or you're going to not. It was tense for a couple of weeks, like, you know, taunting and threats and this, not the third, but I just knew that there was another path for me because I had seen another way forward. And so I, they eventually left me alone and I left them alone. And, you know, I found like a small group of friends that were just like not my community. They were just somebody that like I could be with for my senior year of high school. And then I didn't know for a whole host of reasons. Like I knew nothing about SATs because A, I had just gotten there my senior year and B, like in middle school, my mom didn't know about SATs, right? Like, so when I came back and people were talking, well, not many people in my college school were talking about SATs, but like SATs were not on my radar. So I didn't have a path forward to a traditional college. So I went to community college and I went to community college that had an 80% dropout rate. Whoa. Yeah. It was basically an extension of high school, right? Like whoever was quote unquote going to college was going to a community college. Like I never saw a college counselor in my high school, my senior year. Like I don't even know if there was one, if the school had one. All that to say though, it was my year spent in Columbia that really, again, like I was very determined to explore the world, see the world, go to college, have the future that I wanted to create versus the future that uh, was supposed to be given to me in this country. And so it took me three years to eventually transfer out of my community college, but I transferred to UCLA. And then I've never really gone back to where, where I grew up at the time. So my mom moved out of there and I've just not gone back, to be quite honest. So I was happy to leave and I haven't gone back. I love it. I love it. So many things. It's really funny because I, same, I went from living in Mexico City, going to private school to coming to the US and my mom cleaning houses, being nanny. And so as a like young kid, it's like, we still have Flor. Flor is at my house in Mexico and she she's part of the family. She My brother calls her la jefa, <laughs> la patrona, la patrona, because she, I mean, she's the one that takes care of the house and cleans and cooks and all the things. And so it was, it was a big shift, right? And so going back, like back and forth and back and forth, Agree 100% that you can navigate those worlds because you've existed in both of them. It's so many things that you're saying. Are, I'm like, oh my gosh, yes. Because trying to explain the classism in the US, it's like that happens in Latin America. It's like, what? And you're like, yeah. I mean, indigenous and, and black people are erased. In Mexico, for example, Afro-Mexicans were only acknowledged in the census like in the last decade, which is insane. And so I'm glad I'm not the only one that's lived it. It's so refreshing. So thank you for all of that. Okay. So did you ever have any limiting beliefs as far as like going to college and having lived where you came from? Or do you think having that experience of living in the in the two extremes helped you just continue to navigate? Did you ever doubt yourself? Um. Yeah, of course. Like I think any woman doubts herself in this society. We live in a patriarchal society, which is fueled on our doubt and 
and making sure that we are as submissive as possible. So of course I've doubted myself. I doubted myself as an artist. I doubt myself as an artist still every day. You know, it was interesting. I was just having this conversation with my son this morning. We were having breakfast and out of nowhere, he asked me, mama, sometimes are you afraid to be a parent? I was like, uh, wow. Thanks for the question. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I've doubted myself as a parent for sure. And I 100% doubted myself when I went to UCLA, when I transferred, I transferred in as a junior into UCLA. I was a theater major. So I, you know, which is based on quote unquote talent on your audition and obviously your academics. But I remember that as a junior, there was a couple of classes that I needed to take, which were freshman classes. So I had one class was Theater 101, which is like the history of 101, which is a freshman class, but I was taking it as a junior because I transferred in. And there's not a lot of transfer students in the theater department. So I was there and I remember we were having a conversation with our TA because we had had the lecture earlier that week and it was our first class with our TA. And there was this white kid. I remember him clearly. He was talking about whatever the lecture was about. And he was using words I had never heard of. And he was like using this analysis that I hadn't thought of. And I immediately was like, oh my God, all of these people are so much smarter than me. Like, I'm not going to be able to make it here. And this is a reality for first time college students, black and brown students in particular. Like our education systems in our communities don't necessarily set us up for the college experience, right? Mm-hmm. So I was tremendously doubtful. I was so fearful that I was not good enough or smart enough. But, and I think this is also the gift of an immigrant, to be the child of an immigrant. If it would have just been about me, I probably wouldn't have graduated UCLA. But I had so much responsibility to my mother and to the sacrifices that she made in order to get me there. That failure was just not an option for me. And that has been really kind of the North Star of my life for good or for bad, that it is just like there was the potential of a dreams were sacrificed in order for me to be here for my mother. So that is something that I hold on to very clearly. And that gives me strength when I think that I can't keep going because it's not just about me. Um, And so that was the thing that really got me through the, that mm-hmm. first year of UCLA, which was emotionally hard because it was filled with doubt. Mm. All the things you're saying are music to my ears because I went to school in the Midwest because <laughs> I didn't know how the school system worked. <laughs> so somebody was like, why don't you come to school in Missouri? And I was like, sure, I guess that's what you do. So navigating that and and learning, for example, that people study for the test or they get tutors to pass the test and to like, I didn't, I learned about Ivy League schools, I think when I graduated, frankly, because it was like so out of reach and my mom had no idea. <laughs> and I feel like this story, first, second generations, they're very different because first generations, your parents have no clue. Second generations, there's a little bit of an idea, but you're still oppressed by the system. So it's all of these intricacies that we have to exist with that make our existence just so much more challenging. And so thank you for speaking on that. I happened upon art by accident. It was, again, my senior year of high school that I just got thrown back into public schools in the States. And because I had a solid education in Columbia, I only had to take four classes my senior year. It was like three elective classes and one American history class. So I was in the office waiting to see the principal or whoever it was that I was going to see. And I was talking to this girl. She was new too. And I was like, well, what classes are you going to take? She was like, da-da-da-da-da. And theater. 
theater. And I was like, theater? She was like, yeah, they just started a theater program. And I was like, is it easy? She's like, yeah, it's easy. I was like, dope. That's what I'm taking. So I went into this class. I was like, I'd like to take the theater class. She was like, okay. So I started the theater class. And instantly I fell in love because theater allowed me to, I had always been obsessed with stories growing up. Like I'd always ask my mom about our story of arrival. And I had been talking to my grandmother about her story and our family story. Like I love stories. I love hearing stories. And so the idea that I was able to tell stories, that I was able to like tap into all of my emotions that I was feeling and tell somebody else's story, but still felt like in some ways it was my story was very liberating and very exciting. And I had never been exposed to the theater and until that moment, until the accidental introduction to the theater my senior year of high school. And so when I went to community college, I enrolled in the theater program there. I took like two or three theater classes. And I was very lucky that that theater program was actually a really good theater program. They had great solid teachers and I just fell in love more. And so when I told my mom I was going to be an actress and I was going to major in theater she didn't talk to me for two weeks. She was so mad at me. She was like, I didn't come to this country for you to be a starving artist. I didn't do this for you to do that. And again, as a child of an immigrant, that was the worst possible thing that I could hear because I knew what she had come here for. But I also knew in my heart that I had to do this. And so it was a really, really hard decision to not let my mother influence me what I wanted to do with my future. It was the right decision. And now she's my biggest fan. And I don't act anymore. But the theater and I got I have my master's in the theater as well. The theater opened up my world to the power and the strength and the possibility and the need for art. Mm. So tell me about the quote that changed your life. Yeah. So there's a quote that I read in college um, by Brecht. He's a playwright and a director from Germany who was exiled out of Germany during Nazism. He says, art is not a mirror with which to reflect reality, but a hammer with which to shape it. Mm. And so that quote has stuck in my heart forever. And I didn't realize when I was first starting off as an artist that I was working in that vein, that my art was my hammer. I wasn't just reflecting society. I was trying to build the society that I want through my through my art. And, you know, with my latest book, Sanctuary, that absolutely is the strongest, biggest fucking hammer I have created to make sure that we do not go down the path of a truly authoritarian dictatorial regime, which I think we are living under an authoritarian regime, but I still think that there's a possibility to break out of it, to stop it. If Trump is elected in 2020, then we will 100% full be blown living in an authoritarian regime and the American experiment will be over. I've been saying that for a long time. And, you know, the DNC last night, we heard Obama speak and that was his warning call too. This is our chance in November to protect our democracy. And it is not perfect, not by any means. Uh, and it doesn't protect everyone, even when Donald Trump is not in office. It didn't protect everyone when Obama was in office. But it is the best thing that we have. And it is our job and our duty to make it better without Trump in office. I agree. Oh, my gosh. Okay, we'll unpack all of that. But this is a good time to take a coffee break. Paula, do you drink coffee? I don't. I'm all, the only Colombian in the world that doesn't drink coffee. Are you Colombian? What's happening? I know. I know. I drink tea. I drink tea. It's just caffeine fucks me up. Like I'm so crazy and hyper already. If I drink caffeine, I go bananas. So yeah, I had to switch to a specific kind of coffee because technically I'm not supposed to drink it, but I love it so much. <laughs> so what kind of tea do you drink? I drink chai. <laughs> so I'm a chai drinker, a chai latte. Nice, nice. Do you have a favorite 
place do you visit? Yes, yes, yes. So there is a little coffee shop in my neighborhood, tiny coffee shop. I go every morning without fail to go get my chai latte. I was very worried that during Corona, because of Corona, it would shut down, but it hasn't. It is thriving. They've adapted. They've pivoted. And so every morning I go and I get my chai latte. In the summer, it's iced. In the winter, it's hot. And my son, who's seven, also enjoys himself a chai latte. So that tradition is being passed down to him. Love it. Love it. And on my end, I'm going to talk about this little tiny, tiny coffee shop in San Diego called Oliver. I realized they've been open since the beginning of the year. It's on a like one of those corners buildings that are like end up in a in a triangle almost it's one of those weird intersections and that place is in the very last space in the, in, in that building so it's a tiny coffee shop it's called Oliver I drove by it yesterday and I'm like oh I need to stop one day too because it's so very minimalistic and clean and can't wait to try their coffee but I I'm giving I always give shout outs to local coffee shops because they drive the economy absolutely so important okay let's get back to the show so let's talk about the Women's March. How did that come about? And you said, let's do this. Yeah, the Women's March came about by, I obviously was heartbroken with regards to Trump winning the election. And the days after the election, I called every artist that I knew and asked them what they were thinking, what they were doing. Did art matter? Like if people were going to be deported to their deaths, if the environment was going to be decimated, like what was the purpose and the point of art during these times? And after I was on the phone for two days straight, I talked to so many people. After those conversations, it became more clear to me that art matters more during these moments that the power of art is a power that really no other form has and that it is essential. So while I was having these conversations with artists, there was this conversation online happening about the Women's March. It was just starting to be built. And then three of my friends at the time, Linda, Tamika, and Carmen, who I'd known for over a decade, became involved in the march and became chairs of the march. So I called Carmen up and I was like, Carmen, let me get down. Like, I'm not an activist. I'm a filmmaker, but like I can get shit done. So she was like, yeah, come on. So I started working with Carmen Perez. We were in lockstep throughout the whole process. Um, I became the artistic director and the head of partnerships and worked out of Mr. Harry Belafonte's offices that were our headquarters for the next 10 weeks. You know, there was about 20 of us on the national team that worked out of that office on any given day. And we really built a family. Most of us didn't know each other when we started working together. And that's really important to understand. Like it was a bunch of strangers that were forced together, that came together to work intensely for 10 weeks under tremendous amount of pressure. The national spotlight that none of us had experienced before with the pressure of a horrible president looming over us. And we made mistakes, but our mistakes were minimal to, to the strides that we moved forward. Um, you know, the DNC, I was watching it last night and I'm not sure if you saw it or if, or if the listeners saw it, but it was the night where it was celebrating women. And there was this very powerful montage of of women in this moment of resistance against Trump. And, you know, I've been organizing a variety of different ways for the past four years now. And it is always women. I've always been organizing with women. I can count on one hand how many men I have organized with over the past four years. And so 
it is amazing to me that we are at this moment where we are sounding the alarm and screaming at the top of our lungs and organizing as much as we can against a horrible human being that is Trump. Uh, but we are doing so with women in leadership, with love at our center, with a vision for a country that we want, not just an anti-Trump platform. That gives me hope. That gives me inspiration. That's what also the Women's March was all about when we started it four years ago. I love it. And you touch in, on so many points. One is women in leadership, and there's been studies that show that when women are, are in power, things shift and move in, in directions that make the world a better place. I mean, there's science behind this because women lead with empathy. One and two, the fact that when you share that you were like, "I'm not an activist, but I can get shit done," and there was like. That to me is a message of if you find a cause that you're passionate about, you don't have to have the knowledge, the degree, the whatever it is to make something happen. You just ask, offer, do right. So thank you for for leading us with that example of saying, look, if you want to get something done, just make it happen. And the leading with women, it's really powerful. And I think there's also I don't know if I've seen a shift with women getting together and supporting each other, which is super awesome. I agree with that. I think that、um, you know there is definitely a cultural shift amongst women to support one another, to love one another, to not be in competition with other women. That there doesn't need to be just one of us in the room. There needs to be many of us in the room, and that is the way in which we move forward. You know, it is not by accident that we see all these articles that talk about the countries in the world that have handled the coronavirus. The Best are led by women.、Mm-hmm. That, that is not by accident. Those are the traits of true, solid leadership. And I often think about where we would be in this country if Hillary Clinton was the president during this pandemic. How different it would be. We would be in line and on par with Europe with regards to our economy not being in the horrible state that it is in. With regards to the numbers of deaths in this country. Highest in the world, we would definitely not be there. We would not be in a moment where、uh, science is questioned and the proven theory of masks are completely questioned by a large segment of the population. Because Hillary Clinton, I firmly believe, would have led with science at the heart, would not have allowed there to be second thoughts around what scientists were telling us, and we would be in a much safer situation. We would be opening up schools healthily, in a healthful way, in a sane way for our children. And so, I, I think we, you know, we have to be very clear about the leadership, how it's failed, and that there is another way forward, and that it never had to be this way. We are in this situation, in this pandemic, by choice because Trump is an incompetent, complete fool. I could say many worse words, but I will just leave it with fool. Totally, I. I mean, I agree, and I think now we have in the coming months we have an opportunity if you're a, you're a citizen to make your vote count.、Mm-hmm. I mean, this is the time to make it happen. And all those people that don't vote, please do, because we are where we are. Because <laughs> some people decided to vote.、Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's talk about your book. This has been a book in the making for some years, right? Yes. Yes. And it's also a book written in the future. So tell me about the book and how does one co-write a book? Because it's also a co-written book, right? Yes, yes. So the book is Sanctuary, and it comes out September first, which is important to note. Before September first, you can pre-order it, and pre-ordering a book is super important for authors. So I will say that. Sanctuary. The idea came to me. I was one of the organizers for the marches against family separation two years ago, and I was organizing national marches across the country. And then I was also helping individual families who had been separated from their children. And those two extremes were 
very painful. I was a mother. I am a mother, but my son at that time, he was like five, maybe. So the idea, I knew very clearly what it meant for a five-year-old to not be with their parents and how detrimental that would be, how traumatizing that would be. So it was a very personal experience. In that pain, what was inspiring was that family separations, families belong together, organized these marches across the country, and hundreds of thousands of people came out to march. And within six weeks of the Trump administration enacting the policy of family separation, we were able to stop that policy from continuing forward as they had implemented it. Family separation continues in in different ways on the border, but the way in which we knew it at that time, it stopped in six weeks. And that was inspiring and hopeful. And also, I think like it shifted the the way that the country was going, right? We were going in one way, we stopped this thing and slightly shifted it to another way. So I started to imagine what would have happened if we wouldn't have come out to the streets in those numbers, if family separation would have continued. What was the road, the trajectory that the country would have found itself on? And I started to see a world that was very scary for immigrants, a world that was very unjust, a world that was possible and very close to happening. And I went into this very dark world. Um, and then I asked myself in the middle of all of this darkness, what would get us out of it? What is the answer to this? And what came to me was Valley who is the protagonist of Sanctuary. She's a 16-year-old undocumented girl who is forced to flee her home because the authoritarian regime of 2032 is tracking, attacking, disappearing undocumented immigrants. And so it is a story of how she survives, but also how beyond how she survives, it is a story of essentially her becoming a freedom fighter, right? And I believe that everyday people need to be freedom fighters. Everyday people need to stand up to protect not just themselves, but others in their community and beyond. And if we don't, this is the world that we will live in, which the world of sanctuary is not a world we want to live in. It's a work of fiction, but I say, you know, I've been working in the immigrant rights space for over a decade, and I have had the honor to hear thousands of people's stories. And often when I hear people's stories, it is at their most vulnerable, it is at their most painful and their most uncertain moments in their lives. And so all of these stories I've, I've held inside of me, I've protected, I've loved, I've cried with, and then I poured them into this book. And so, so many of the stories that I've heard are fragments of the story of uh, Sanctuary. And it is uh, a story that is based in authenticity, is based in pain, but also based in a tremendous amount of love and hope. And that it's a story that I'm very, very proud of. And with regards to working with Abby Sher, my co-writer, it was a joy to write a book. It's This is my third book, is a painfully solitary experience, one that I don't enjoy. So the idea of writing a book with someone was exciting to me. And myself as an artist, I've collaborated throughout my entire life, my artistic life. And I love it. Like, I think it makes me a better artist when I'm collaborating. And I collaborate in very non-traditional ways. And that's exciting to me, too, navigating new relationships and new ways to work. So writing with Abby was great, very non-traditional. And uh, I can't wait to do it again for book two. So awesome. And so one thing that you mentioned is pre-ordering the book and that being very important for authors. And I want to give a call to all anyone who listens to this show to do that and support because we need more Latinx brown people authors. And that's the story that people say all the time, right? Like we need more representation. And what is important is to support the representation that we have, right? So 
why is it important to pre-order and your thoughts on just supporting the little representation that we have? Yes. So this is like one of my new favorite subjects. Um, and I'm going to liken it to this moment in time that we're living in. So I live in New York. And so obviously the months of March, April, May were ridiculously scary. They were so uncertain. They were terrifying to be in New York during that time. And thank God we had Zoom. Thank God we had phones. And so we were able to still be in community with people. And when I was talking to my girlfriends, we would talk about what was getting us through this moment. So we would talk about what TV shows are you watching? What movies are you watching? What books are you reading? What songs are you listening to? What poetry have you read that has given you some sort of clarity in this moment of darkness? We often talk about art. And then the conversation around not just my community, but all around the country was like, you know, Tiger King, what we were watching because we had Tiger King and that crazy ass show and this book and that book and this article. And it was art that saw us through the darkest of times in the pandemic. It was not art that saved our lives, literally, but it was art that saved our souls. It was art that mm-hmm. saved our hearts. It was art that gave us an anchor. Meanwhile, we were able to be safe in our homes. And that is the importance of art right there for the past Five months now that we've been in the pandemic, art has centered us. It's given us clarity. It has given us possibility in the darkness. And so what I want to say to people is we can't have art without artists getting paid to work, right? I read an article that said one third of all working artists have lost their jobs. The amount of art that will no longer be created because we are jobless, that is a travesty for humanity. That is a travesty for our society. So when we have art, we have to support it. And I know there are financially difficult times for many of us. So if you can't pre-order the book, there are still some things that you can do. One, you can talk about it on social media, which is obviously free. And two, you can go to your local library and you can ask your local library to order the book. And that allows for you to be able to read the book. That's supporting the local library. And that also allows the book to get purchased, which is important. And it allows people to read the book. If you are able to buy the book, then please do. Because as you say, Pam, it is important to uh, have representation because seeing yourself in the world makes you believe, makes you know that you are part of this world, that you are part of this community. Having Kamala Harris as our VP is extraordinary Mm -hmm. because she's an incredible candidate, but because we see a woman reflected in this position of power, which means I can do it. We see Black women, Black girls say that they exist as intelligent, incredible groundbreaking women. Indian women see themselves reflected. The fact that that Kamala, I don't remember how it's pronounced, so I'm not going to say it, but she said the word auntie in small, I think it was, or maybe it was Hindi. I don't know the the language, but she said it on the national stage for her acceptance speech. On my Twitter feed, I was just seeing all of my friends who are AAPI. They were astounded they were inspired they they they, like it was validation which is really important so all that to say is please pre-order my book but not just my book but those books of authors that are out there uh trying to be in the world and tell stories that are different because if our books don't do well they won't let us write more books Mm -hmm. yeah we have power with our dollars we can speak with our dollars exactly it's a buying power that we have i love it and also to remove that colonized mentality that brown and black folks still get paid because I see that often and I've had to face it to face the fact that people 
me regatean, ¿cómo se dice? Like, people try to, like, talk you down on your price. Oh, yeah, negotiate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they negotiate, you know, like that stuff. Like, let's stand up for each other and say, okay, if you're work And speaking of artists, right, buy a print from someone. I often look for local artists and, like, even if it's a postcard, you know, that's supporting them. And if they sell us, I bought a sticker the other day for a tiny sticker for $3. And while my subconscious was like, oh, that's a little tiny sticker for $3. It's like, hey, buy the sticker because it's, it's, <laughs> it's a brown person, right? Yeah. And you're supporting their work. It's $3. And I'll put the sticker on my, on my water bottle and it's going to be fine. But knowing that you are supporting someone that looks like you, that is creating art, that resonates with you, that is showing up in the world representing, it's so important. So pre-order the book. Thank you. Where can we find the book? Tell us all the things. Oh, so you can find the book anywhere where books are sold. So, you know, I've been supporting local bookstores, obviously. Um, so if you can find a local book bookstore in your neighborhood, please do. And then there's obviously the big re retailers that are carrying the book. Yes. Go to bookshop.org. Yeah, bookshop. Yeah, bookshop is great. They that, So for those that don't know, Bookshop is just a aggregator of local bookstores. So you just type in the title, you put in your address, and it will buy the book from a local bookstore. It will do the work for you, which is great. Mm -hmm. I buy books from Bookshop. And I think we're so used to, we've been trained by the big A company to get that immediate gratification and get things in two days. <laughs> so I've been ordering books from Bookshop and it takes like a week. Have patience. knowing that you're doing yeah. it for a better cause. <laughs> and you're helping the economy. Those big companies, they don't need our money right now. Like they really don't. They're fine. They're doing more than fine. They're doing better than they were pre-pandemic. But the local bookstores, they really need our money because this is mm -hmm. the thing that I often worry about and think about in New York. Not sure how it is across the country, but like when we go out finally back like into our city, the city is going to be a very different city than when we left it. For sure. So many stores, restaurants, hangouts, coffee shops, they're going to be closed. And so we've been protected and sheltered from that because we're indoors for the most part right now. Eventually we're going to get out and eventually we're going to see our cities completely different. And so we have to we have to try and protect them as best as best we can. Totally. What's next for Paula? Hi, what's next? That's a great question. It's hard to think about what's next in the middle of a pandemic. So I will say that I am focusing in the, na the next, I don't even know how many days it is, 78 days, I think, 77 days left for the election, really focusing on the election. Yes. And then I also have a kid who I'm trying to deal with figuring out education in school. He's in second grade. So that is taking up a lot of my time and realizing that, you know, he's not going back to school. Mentally, I'm telling myself he's not going back to school until January. So it's going to be a, an intense fall. I love it. Well, and, I, and and one thing that I, I love about your story is that you're driven by what I heard a lot is you're driven by your passion for a cause, you know, whether it's family separation or the women's march or women's rights, you know, all the things. And at the end of the day, because I think one of the my beliefs that I had is that you had the career and it's it's very like the immigrant mentality that you go into this path and you stay within it until you retire, right? But we live in a very different world now. And I love that your story, like you've done this and then you've shifted to do this other thing and you're driven by by the passion that keeps you going and you're not constrained to a box, which I love. Yes, I think that that is, you know, the world that we're in at this moment, that we are flexible, especially in the middle of a pandemic 
to not live in those boxes and not live in the world that society wants us to make that limits ourselves. Um, and it is at times scary and uncertain to not know exactly where you're going to be in two, three, four, five, six months for sure. But we get shit done. So it'll figure itself out. We do. We exactly. do. We do. We have the resiliency built in our bones. <laughs> Paula, anything else you want to share that I didn't ask? No, I think I'm good. This was really great. I rarely talk about like my childhood and stuff. So that was uh, good to be able to talk about. I'm just so grateful for your support with the book and this podcast and the work that you're doing. So stay healthy and stay safe. Yes, thank you. No, likewise. Thank you for all, all the things that you do and for continuing to show up for our communities. I have a very personal family separation story. And so seeing all the things that are done for family separation, it's, it's very touching. We're actually, this weekend, my brother is going to meet my niece and nephew for the first time. Oh, wow. That's great. Is how, where? Is he going to Mexico or? We're they- going to Tijuana. So I'm in San Diego and my niece and nephew are here. My sister's coming. And so he's coming from Mexico City to Tijuana. We're crossing the border to Tijuana and we're going to hang out there for a day or so that's so wonderful i'm so happy for you thank you i'm glad that you are able to do that right and it's 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 such a privilege because so many families don't have that opportunity i mean all the families in central america and south america they can't do this they don't have the resources and so i do feel an extreme sense of privilege to be able to even talk to him on the phone and know where he is so yeah it's a lot but we, we got to keep going. And okay, last two questions. So do you have a remedio that you want to share? A remedio. Oh my gosh. It doesn't have to be like a tea, you know, or a no, remedy. It's of course. Whatever. Well, okay. If it's whatever, there is a saying in Colombia that says, agua salada cura todo, el mar, el sudor y las lágrimas. Mm. And so rough translation is salt water cures everything. The ocean, tears, and sweat. And so that is something that I, I often remind myself of. We got to do all those three things in order to stay healthy and stay balanced. And they're all needed equally. 100%. Vulnerability is a huge sign of strength. I love it. I love it. And do you have a quote or a mantra that you live by? Is it the quote that you shared with us or do you have another one? There are so many quotes that I live by. You know, I've said two already, but I will also say just because it was said last night in the DNC, but it was on my Facebook page for a long time. The urgency of now, Dr. Martin Luther King, that's his quote. And I think that that's also one of the mantras that I live by that we are in the urgency of now. And so we need to get shit done. Mm-hmm. Yes. Oh, tell us where we can find you. Where do you hang out the most? I hang out in New York City the most. So come out to New York City. Well, we're not hanging out right now. But when when we are back in action, we will be hanging out, living in New York City, out on those streets every day, all day, every day. All day, every day. Social media? Instagram is where I'm most active. And it's just my name, Paola Mendoza. And I talk about mostly immigration and politics on my Instagram. Perfect. I love it. Paula, thank you so much for being here at Cafe Con Pam. Thank you for sharing your story. Thank you for your work, for all the things that you do, for being so inspiring for all of us and being up there representing. Gracias, amor. Cuídate. Besitos, abrazos. Salud. 
And that was Paula Mendoza Manis. I hope you found her story inspiring as much as I did. And I hope you pre-ordered her book so we can continue to elevate Latinx voices. If you are new here, welcome. If you love this episode, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. I will love you forever if you do that. Doing so will help us gain more visibility in the interwebs and all of the interwebs so other people like you can find us. I would love to continue to hang out. Join us inside our free community for recovering procrastinators like you at stayshining.club. Also, I'm all over social media kind of all over social media. I love Instagram. Don't forget to follow at Cafe Compan Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. I'm on Facebook too, preferably Instagram. That's where I hang out the most. Listeners, thank you so much for choosing to be here today. I know I'm well aware this is a choice. You choose to put me in your ears every week or every whenever you catch up with the show because I know some people save some episodes and then come back and binge listen, which is pretty cool. So thank you for being here once again. So grateful for you. Como siempre, never forget to stay shiny.